I'm your host, Wally, and welcome to Content Warning. I was going to start off with a general idea of content warnings and trigger warnings and how this podcast got its name, but because media changes with society, it felt right to change the order of my early episodes. We are going to be talking about the censorship and development of queer representation in young adult literature. And this is in direct response to current events, but if you're listening in the future and don't know what I'm referring to, in recent weeks there was a brutal murder of a non-binary indigenous teen in Oklahoma named Nex Benedict. I think in this time when we have seen a marked increase in attempts to censor stories of queer, trans, and non-binary teens, we have also seen legislation rise to try and limit their health care and access how we treat the stories and the media around a certain group of individuals that is going to affect how they're treated in their community and by their peers. So even though I recorded this episode with Gregory Taylor before these events, this felt like the right conversation to have at this time. And we will release our more general content warning episode in a couple of weeks. But for now, I hope you listen thoughtfully, listen responsibly, and listen with care for yourself. And I hope you take something that you learn with you into your community. And now here's the episode. teacher and school librarian, educator, uh, has also served on the American Library Association Award Committees for the Morris Award, the Prince Award, very recently the Stonewall Award, and I'm thinking the Rainbow List was also something that you worked on, is that correct? That's true. Okay. And uh, you also do a lot of like local panel moderation for authors, and you and I have taught a class together for adult education, and you were working on a adult education class about the history of young adult literature. That's is right. That, is that the full rundown? Did I miss anything? That sounds about right. <laughs> okay, yeah, good. and um, I did uh, teach a young adult literature course at BSU for a few years. Oh, I remember. I think I guessed lectured at that class once, didn't I? I think you I? did. That's right. <laughs> yeah. So thank you for having me, Wally. It's uh, good to be here. Thanks for coming. So I wanted to talk to you specifically because you know more about the history of young adult literature than anybody I know. But I feel like you were a junior high librarian during the sort of boom of queer rep in young adult literature. So I feel like when we first met, which was, I don't know, maybe 15 years ago. Sounds about right. Maybe like a couple David Levithan books that were like cis white gay dude, but like that was about it, you know? Right. And yeah. now everywhere I turn, all all of the books have like at least one like queer side character when, you know, you're looking at, at new YA books. And so I just... Can you tell um, the listeners a little bit about um, how, like, the, the history of that, maybe within the context of young adult literature? Sure. I know that's a big question. Take that, as much time as you need. <laughs> okay. Well, that is kind of a big question. Um, as far as the history of young adult literature, there's a book from 1942 called 16th Summer, which has never gone out of print. It's kind of dated now, as you would expect. I would expect, yeah. But a lot of people kind of pinpoint that book and its huge success as, like, sort of the start of young adult literature that was intended to be young adult literature. Okay. But then, in more modern times, um, pretty much the book world has kind of agreed that 1967 and the publication of The Outsiders is sort of like the, you know, ground zero starting point for the modern era of young adult literature and when it really became a thing and not just sort of a one-off, you know, lucky 
book published here or there that sort of fit the definition. What's interesting is that the first the first YA book to feature gay characters was in 1969. It was just two years later. And in fact, it was released two weeks before the Stonewall riots. Oh my God. What book was it? It's it's called um, I'll Get There. It Better Be Worth the Trip. (laughs) That is the gayest title I've ever heard. Right? (laughs) And it's uh, the main character's a 13-year-old boy. And Uh he develops this friendship with another boy at school. And then starts to think that maybe his feelings are more than just friendship or best friendship. And it sort of develops from there. And there's there's a kiss on the page and <gasps> and a sleepover where something happens, but that's off the page. Okay. And um Fate it's a black situation. Very Got much. It. And okay. it's really it's very tame, but it's very sweet. And it's not like that really opens the floodgates though. Right. In the it's interesting, I was reading for just sort of my general interest in the history of YA an article that I think was maybe by Nancy Garden, who wrote Annie on My Mind, okay, which was a, a lesbian story that came out in 1982. And I was reading an article by her, and this may have been a different article, I'm not sure. But somewhere, somebody had done kind of analysis of major publishers and could only find 11 books in the entire 1970s that were young adult that had any sort of queer themes. There was a book, Ruby, that came out in, I think, around 75 or 76, Um, that was a lesbian story. And so you've got, I'll get there, it better be worth the trip in 69, and Ruby in the mid-70s, and a few others scattered in there. But Not a lot. Not a lot. And what's really disturbing in hindsight is that there was often, people are probably most familiar with this syndrome from like, teen horror movies where like you know if you have sex then you're going to get killed sure sure there are a lot of car crashes and suicides and things kill your gays era absolutely Mm -hmm. yeah um so even if gays are portrayed in a fairly positive light or that you know they have this romance that at least in their own mind is okay things do not end well they get punished for it yeah sure absolutely okay so in the 80s things get better but this is an era just of all YA lit of a lot of problem novels you know where people are dealing with you know one thing in particular Mm -hmm. and the whole novel's about that and that's true across all YA literature at the Mm -hmm. time and so there's you know a lot of drinking and drugs and pregnancy pregnancy, and um and any other sort of social problem that teens wrestle with that you can imagine jenny joins a gang i know exactly what you're talking about precisely Mm -hmm. and in this era we're we're getting some more queer books but still not a ton more that same article that identified 10 or 11 books in the 70s identified still just 40 in all of the 80s oh my god so so it's like I guess it's a lot more. It's like on one hand you say it's four times more, but it's, wise, yeah. but it's still only forty in a decade. Yeah, and in this era, it's a lot of main characters who have a best friend who's gay, or oh, a sibling okay. who's gay, or right. a mentor in their life who they find out is gay. And the problem is not at all about the queer person, the queer character, really. It's all about, you know, can I stay friends with this person? Or, I, you know, I love my brother or sister, but... Oh, God. uh, Yeah. Yikes. Um, Yeah. I guess that's probably in the, like, uh, gay conversion camp era. A little bit. And a lot of these books were we're actually taking a pretty positive stance toward the queer characters, especially for the time. Mm -hmm. But even so, it was like the big dilemma or the big problem was how does the straight person or the ostensibly straight person deal with, you know, this. deeply fascinating. Yeah. Gosh. So then what happens in the 90s? 
So in the 90s is when we finally start to get more main character energy for queer characters <laughs> at long last. We love it. Yes. Yeah. Where we have, you know, first person narrators or main characters who are queer. And in a lot of cases, these are still problem novels, but it's more directly related. And so it's coming out stories. How do I come out to my family? How do I find, you know, is there anybody else in the world like me? Am I ever going to have a boyfriend or a girlfriend or... This was my perspective on like early YA and all, because I think the first ones I encountered were probably late 90s, early 2000s. And it was like every book was a coming out novel and it was like a traumatic coming out story. And like that was every book. Right. Yeah. And Am I Blue is a collection of short stories. And I was actually surprised when I was getting ready for this conversation today. That was one of the books that I remembered being kind of an early one and kind of cool because it was a short story collection where every short story was by a different author. That's cool. And and I was surprised to see that that came out in 94. I would have guessed it a little later, actually. And a lot of those stories still really hold up. But it's definitely part of that era of like, we're still sort of treading lightly into this into this territory Uh for sure and it it's interesting if you're looking for like you know i think i think a lot lately in more recent times people are just saying queer as an umbrella Mm -hmm. term but you still see lgbtq or lgbtqia plus used a lot and historians of young adult literature have pointed out that it was really it was all like l g q yeah (laughs) that it was and like you were saying a few minutes ago, it it's a lot of white, male, gay, middle class, very palatable. Yes. Very like, <laughs> um, quote unquote, normal American kid in every other way. Right. And they just have this one feature. It's one thing. That's, we can only you know, deal with one at a time. <laughs> that makes them different. Yeah. So. It's not until Luna comes out in 2004 that we get a trans character, a trans main character in a YA book. And that kind of, I remember when that book came out and reading it and thinking it was groundbreaking, but I would have never thought that it was the very first or that we had never had a trans character prior to that. 2004. Um, wow. Yeah. I'm both like surprised and not surprised at that. Like, there's part of me that's like, of course we would have had one before that. And then there's a part of me that's like, wow, 2004, that seems early. <laughs> like, I don't know. There's, I'm split on, right. on how I feel about that. Because you mentioned David Levithan, Boy Meets Boy, came out in 2003. So right around that same era. And I felt like that book was so groundbreaking because there was a lot of queer joy Mm -hmm. and very little queer angst. Some, but... It's still a young adult novel. There's got to be some angst. Of course. (laughs) And the, the two boys who meet in Boy Meets Boy, one is from a town that's a little less accepting but most of the action happens in the other boy's town, which is sort of this acceptance and tolerance utopia <laughs> where everybody's okay with everybody else and everybody's happy. And I mean, I think I think David Levithan, you know, knew he it wasn't reality. No. It was a little bit surreal. The you might have like the star of the football team, if I'm remembering these details correctly also sometimes comes to school in drag, but on a motorcycle and just sort of mixing up all the teen trope characters uh, in really creative and fun ways. Oh, man. David um, loved it. What a gift. Yeah. <laughs> and I still love that book. But that same year, Geography Club came out. And that's another book I just absolutely love. But in that book, a bunch of kids who sort of semi-accidentally figure out that some of their friends are queer and that they're queer and that they thought they were the only one and mm-hmm. they want to start a support group for themselves and each other but the only way they can do that is call it geography club so that everybody will think it's so boring nobody shows up or asks them what their club is about (laughs) (laughs) i had never heard of this book but i love the premise so much yeah it's really really good yeah so it's really i would say not until the past 10 years 
probably a little more, but really full on in the last 10 years. But the last 12 to 15 maybe where we start to get some intersectionality and some richer stories. Okay. Where we start to see queer characters of color and queer characters from a richer array of socioeconomic backgrounds mm-hmm. and cultural experiences. Yeah. It, yeah, I think I the first like ace spectrum character that I ever read was Every Heart a Doorway. By Shannon McGuire. I don't know if there's one before that, but like I remember being so delighted to like because I had just like never seen that in a traditionally published book before, and so yeah, I mean, like I feel like there's so much now. It's, I mean, we just had the uh, American Library Association Youth Media Awards, which is like teen librarian Oscar night, I guess, or right. Oscar morning at like, you know, 8 a.m. And even the books that were not in the Stonewall Awards, like there were a bunch of them that had queer up in them. Yeah, for sure. Um, I mean, I think these days in publishing, I I have sort of complicated thoughts about this, but these sure. days in publishing, I don't think your young adult literature is going to get much traction it might get published it's not gonna get the most glowing reviews or wind up on all the lists unless you have some queer rep in there somewhere even Mm -hmm. if it's not primarily a queer story and some diversity in other aspects as well and that can only be a good thing that that sort of stuff is getting more exposure but i think we've gotten to the to a point where maybe the pendulum could swing back just yeah, a little it's bit. A slightly supersaturated. Yes. Yeah. And where awards for other things entirely, or just general awards like the Prince, which is just for excellence in young adult literature, is like we're in this era right now where nothing's even going to be considered for the Prince unless mm-hmm. it's got this nice, diverse slate of rep. Sure. No matter how brilliantly it's written or how strong the story is, if it's like... You gotta check a couple boxes. You do. Yeah. yeah absolutely. And I mean, there's there's gotta be some marketing pressure to, like, if the market is demanding it, then they will finally publish it, you know? And so having that demand for it is good. And, but yeah, I, I like, I think that it's it's interesting how far... The publishing industry, not a very responsive industry in general, not a very fast-moving industry when it comes to adjusting to trends in a lot of ways. But in this way, I think the, like, we need diverse books and, like, that kind of social media campaign, the, like, publishing Twitter-verse, you know, really moved that in. And so I feel like it really has been, over the last decade or two, that it has been just like this explosion. I mean, from the, yeah, we were getting 40 books a year. And now it's like, I have 40 books just within the last month on, you know, a, a reading list that are, you know, have some version of, of queer rep. And so it has been a huge explosion, which I think brings me to the other thing I want to talk about is that while that explosion has been happening, queer literature, especially queer young adult literature, has been a constant target of censorship. And I think the most banned books for the last 10 years were queer books or books about racism or both, you know? Mm -hmm. And (laughs) Absolutely. And I think that... In what was it, just like a couple weeks ago, our local state legislature, somebody implied that even gay people holding hands was inherently explicit. Well, this is what's infuriating. You're right. <laughs> about this whole issue. I think part of why we, maybe, maybe I'm naive, we thought this was behind us. And now, it, you know, it's back full force. I think worse than ever before. Part of it is just how much great queer literature is out there, and especially queer literature for young adults and even younger kids. Just a little more history. The Stonewall Award was originally only for adult books. 
started by the ALA in 1971. It's the oldest and the most enduring award for queer literature anywhere in the world. It's been around for over 50 years now. I have now. no idea. But the youth division of that has only been around since 2010. Whoa! And I think that speaks to part of ALA's, you know, they move slowly because they're a huge institution. Sure. And, mm-hmm. and so it takes a while to turn the ship. But part of it was just there wasn't enough, you know, to consider this a separate category for mm-hmm. an award. And once or twice prior to 2010, a young adult book would show up as an honor book on the Adult Stonewall oh, Award. Okay. And I think probably when that showed up more and more in the conversations of the committee each year, then suddenly it was like, well, there needs to be a separate award for this because there's more great teen queer lit out there. And the very first one, I just want to give it a shout out. Um, The first YA Stonewall Award winner in 2010 was a book called The Vast Fields of Ordinary. And oh gosh, it's just a beautiful book and it's really wonderful. But I just finished up on the Stonewall Award committee, the the one for youth, Mm -hmm. which even that now just in the past two years has been split into two awards. It's just one committee, but we got to choose two awards, one for children's lit and one for YA lit. So picture books and middle grade books all kind of get lumped together for one award and then young adult. And we, we considered... 374 books just in the most recent year so that's i mean compare that to when we were talking about 11 books 11 books in a decade or even 40 books (laughs) in the next decade and now we have 374 in a year and those were the ones we considered i mean we try to consider absolutely everything that would be eligible anything that would have queer content um, so that's that's a great thing, but that means for people who find that scary or um, the really potentially rapid increase harmful is like oh my gosh this is taking over the world and mm-hmm. you know because yeah I feel like this era of like censorship and book banning really I mean it's always been there but it's a massive increase recently. And I feel like we haven't had this much concentrated and concerted effort since, I don't know, like the McCarthy era. I mean, it is, and people are getting death threats and bomb threats. Like, it is unreal. And I do not doubt that there are people out there who sincerely feel like books and other media have gone too far. And they have to protect not just their own children, but all the world's children from harmful stuff, but I think the majority of this is something else entirely. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it it's disingenuous when they try to paint it as that. Because honestly, I think they're trying to... It's, it's erasure. It's, you know, make America great again. But th- that means, you know, white and straight and middle class and nothing varies from the norm. And the quote-unquote norm. Yes, quote-unquote And so this it comes all the way back around to when you were talking about, like, even holding hands is right. supposedly, like, you know, offensive and harmful. And therefore, you're a groomer if you, you know, give a kid a book where, you know, two similarly gendered people hold hands. Yeah. Or whatever. Yeah. No, it is... Uh, just the double standard is unreal. Like when you think about like classics, like literary classics by white straight men that if they had like the same level of like sexual content in like a queer relationship, you would never get it in a, a high school library or much less a junior high library, you know? And I... Yeah, the double standard is what really gets to me, is that the very nature of queerness is seen as explicit. And it's like it's not that it's sexual content, because there's straight sexual content in young adult books, because teens have sex, and like a lot of teenagers are reading adult books. But anything that is queer, even in like a picture book, gay penguins, somebody having two moms, <laughs> you know, like... Is seen as explicit, and that drives me absolutely bonkers. 
moms. Yeah. Speaking of two moms, I think even people who don't pay that much attention to queer literature, everybody's heard of Heather Has Two Mommies. Sure. That yep. came out in 1989. Um, so 89? Really? 89. Wow. So it's been over 30 years now. And at the time it came out, and really ever since, you know, it's kind of a, a dog whistle or a, you know, easy flag to wave for people as, you know brandish this as this is what's wrong if we're reading this to like you know three and four and five year olds or whatever but a lot of the criticism at the time and since about that book and other books but that one in particular was that it it promoted and celebrated a certain kind of family and that that's inappropriate and what that ignores is that then every other book in the world that has a family in it that those people would find acceptable with like a mom and a dad and 2.3 kids and a dog that then is seen as the only right kind of family and so if it's a family of color if it's a family with a single parent if it's you know a family with no kids Mm -hmm. (laughs) um that these are all somehow sort of wrong and that just because you show a different kind of family because everybody's family is different in some way or another but if you show a different kind of family then somehow you're promoting and celebrating only that kind of family yeah no we're trying to promote and celebrate any kind of family Mm -hmm. but to have everybody see themselves represented in that it's interesting because that's right around the same time that um rudine sims bishop came out with her article about windows mirrors and sliding glass doors okay and that whole idea that it's so important for readers but especially children to find both windows and mirrors in what they read can you for people who aren't like professional book people sure. will you kind of explain what that means absolutely and so the whole idea is that by reading We have windows into other people's experiences that don't match our own and that that's important and that we also, it's important for us to find mirrors in what we read. In other words, to find representation of our own identities, all those different identities. Mm -hmm. that's, That's such a valuable and important idea. And then that means that literature that features queer characters or people of color or you know heather has two mommies or whatever is important on both of those fronts yeah um because if you want those people with those identities to find those mirrors and you want people who aren't part of those identities to have that window exactly into that experience and to say that you know so many of the books that are on these banned lists now do feature queer characters, but a lot of them feature characters of color as well. And not really any other offensive or, or, you know, well, I think this is the crux of it is that they're saying we want to protect our kids, but it really, when you dig into it feels more like you want to protect yourself from having to discuss this with your kids. Yes. And dealing with, like, a new reality. And even more insidious, if the only thing about a book that's supposedly uh, offensive or scary or whatever is that the characters in it are black or Hispanic or queer, then implicitly what you're saying is, I want to protect my straight white kids. Yeah. Because... Are you protecting black kids from literature with black characters in it? Mm-hmm. Are you protecting queer kids from... I don't think I'd ever thought about it that way. That's interesting. That's what just about makes my head explode is these people apparently have a very narrow picture in their mind of like standard American child. Yeah. And that child is not queer. And that child... Uh, it's is not, not black or brown. Poor. Yeah. And mm-hmm. um, yeah, and all of these people need to find their representation in the books they read. Yeah. It's just so important. It is. Thank you for this perfect transition into one of the things I wanted to talk about, about the importance of seeing representation. I 
always say that representation is suicide prevention. And I think that that is incredibly important for uh, queer kids. I wrote down some some stats from the Trevor Project, just so I could have my numbers right, that uh, queer youth are four times more likely than their peers to attempt suicide. Among trans and non-binary youth, that they are two to two and a half times more likely than other queer youth. So that's on top of the 4% more likely. And then among non-white queer kids in that, like it just stacks. It's different for, for kind of each identity. But so that's the numbers are so high and scary to me that like it just breaks my heart that we're trying to erase the representation, like all of the progress we've made towards fighting that. And and like you were talking about how we they used to all be these like kind of dramatic kill your gays books and that we've had this increase of gay joy you know, and that it's okay to have a rom-com. I mean, I think about Red, White, and Royal Blue, mm-hmm. right? Like, and how just, like, over-the-top adorable that <laughs> that book is and how it crossed over into the mainstream and, like, they made a movie out of it and, like, amazing, you know? I mean, it was, you know, still cis um, gay boys, but at least one of them was brown. But I mean, but still, like crossing over into the mainstream, I think is is another kind of benchmark. And like, on some ways, we I feel like we're in this golden era. But then on the other side, that increased visibility has caused this just peanut gallery of like demons. And not only are they trying to squash that representation. So if you take these books out of schools and libraries and try to get rid of them altogether so that they're just not even available, which I think is their ultimate goal. Sometimes Mm -hmm. you hear the kind of lame excuse, well, if people want those books, they can go buy them. Well, no, that's not economically feasible for everybody. And that flies in the face of like the foundations of American democracy and, and libraries the themselves, <laughs> yes, exactly. yeah, which I consider go hand in hand. They're I agree. I all agree. part of the same package. But not only that, by having these very public fights and saying such ferociously hateful things about not just these books, but the people who write these books, the people who provide access to these books through libraries and yes, also bookstores, um, but primarily libraries, you're also not just pulling that representation out of the hands of the kids who need it, but you're also sending this loud public message that you are not okay. And you uh, are, you know, all, yeah. Giant steps backwards to all of that gay trauma and... And I don't think it's an accident. This is happening at the same time that all of these bills trying to restrict gender-affirming care from trans people and trans kids. Like, these go hand in hand. Like, if you're attacking these narratives as aberrant and you're restricting this health care, like, these narratives are going side by side. The stories that we are telling and attacking about this literature affects the laws that are affecting people's actual lives. Oh, and absolutely. And even Dobbs. I feel like it's all, it's all part of the same package. Yeah. Who can we subjugate, squash, and erase and keep under control so power stays in the hands of the same few? I feel like erase is the right word. They want to stop these stories. We don't want to see it. It means you want to erase these stories, but that also means you want to erase these people. And I'm like, when you're saying that you're doing this to protect kids, yeah, you're right. They're saying specifically... We want to protect the straight kids because they want to erase the queer kids. Yeah. And that is terrifying and scary, and I don't like it. Yeah. You were talking about Red, White, and Royal Blue, and sort of how it crossed over into the mainstream, and everybody just kind of fell in love with the book, and then they made a movie, and... Mm -hmm. It was reminding me of when I was on the Morris Committee, Mm -hmm. which is an award specifically for debut YA fiction. And it just so happened that the year I was on Morris, the book we chose as our winner was Simon vs. the Homo Sapiens Agenda. 
such a good book. It's such a good book, and it's so delightful. And I feel like this was kind of on the cusp of, but really before ALA kind of, yes, you know, ALA was already worried, has been worried for a long time, that, you know, a huge, overwhelming majority of their membership is white female middle class and so that when I was on Morris almost 10 years ago now it was definitely becoming more of a concern on these committees that you be conscious of that but not like you need to pick something that has sure you know a lot of diversity so it was not I maybe I'm misremembering but I do not think it was on our minds of like ooh, look at us you know choosing a queer book for an award that has nothing to do with, you know, mm-hmm. queer themes or characters in its in its charge. But that was a book that then went on, you know, that made, you know, a major studio movie of it that was very popular. And yes, it, it got some of the same criticism of, you know, here we have like a nice, white, polite, upper middle class, smart, good looking boy who just also happens to be gay and that makes it palatable. But okay, if that's what it takes to start breaking down you got to start somewhere. You know, We've got to yeah. start somewhere. And um, yeah, definitely crossed over into the mainstream. And if that book, I mean, it would have been an entirely different book for reasons. But if you'd had a similar plot, but all the characters in that book were straight, nobody would have trouble with the scenes where people kiss or yeah. hold hands or drop F-bombs but suddenly it gets that scrutiny because it's a gay boy. Mm-hmm. And suddenly, you know, well, this this book has a whole bunch of F words in it. Okay, a whole lot of young adult literature books yeah. have a whole lot of F words <laughs> in them. And don't show up on those lists no. in Texas and yeah. all these other places. So, yeah, again, just the double standard is, is super frustrating. And like I say, I... I don't buy that most of these people really just have protection of children and children's best interests at heart. It it is about erasure. It's about power. It's about, like you say, things that make them uncomfortable to have to talk about with their children. So the kind of last big thing I want to talk about is, because you've recently retired. Yes. But in the the last, you know, couple years of, of your reign, supreme of the junior library, I feel like it's been a very stressful time, especially in our lovely state of Idaho, to um, work in the book world. And I think I, I want to talk a little bit about the strain of that. And especially as I feel like I remember you saying in a group setting that you had been like, identified by some group in northern Idaho or something. Am I remembering that correctly? Yes. And other people had to bring it to my attention. I don't worry about these things. I I speak up and speak out. Like you say, I've, you know, moderated author panels. I've testified before the legislature about some of this stuff. I just, I'm a big advocate for books and reading. And so in my mind, that's all I'm doing is just trying to get people to read more and get books into the hands of kids, especially the ones that need the representation to help them find the right books. Apparently this put me on the radar of <laughs> of some people because on somebody's shit list. Yeah. Because suddenly I got a call one day from a friend who's very involved with and one of the officers of the Idaho Library Association saying, Oh my gosh, have you have you seen this video clip are you aware what they're saying do you feel like you need protection do we what should we do about this and i'm like what are you talking about and that's so alarming like, it, like, it was kind of alarming like my heart is racing just thinking about it and i know you're okay I am okay, and I think I'm going to be okay. Um, And again, maybe I'm being naive, um, because like you said earlier, there are librarians who've received death threats and other sorts of scary activity. What was the video clip? Did you actually watch the video? What was it? I did, and it was somebody who I have no recollection of ever meeting or anything, but she claimed we had worked together and... um, knew me she knew me well 
and that there was this this middle school librarian who was one of these people who was, you know, spreading all the worst books and out there really just pushing these books on kids and made some claims and assumptions about me that have never been part of my public persona that um, just assumptions on her part um, in her descriptions of me. She did not use my name, and I don't know if that was intentional, but there were enough identifying features that several people from several several different angles or points of view said, have you seen this woman who's talking about you? And it's <laughs> like, it, it was clear she was talking about me. Oh, wow. And what was interesting is she was talking from this part of the state, Nampa maybe, or Caldwell, but the the larger video was of a like town hall meeting somewhere up north. And she had videoed in or zoomed in or something to that meeting. And so the audience was sort of like wow, doubly big because it was happening at a small town and a small town hall meeting but that was being broadcast and then later the tape of it was like put on YouTube and sent around as a link. And so, um, yeah, it sort of had this multi-pronged audience it it was aimed at. And I was very glad that the Idaho Library Association was aware of it and keeping an eye on it and worried about me. I, I think they're a fantastic organization and that just cemented that for me even more. Mm-hmm. But also... Yeah, aside shout out to the ILA. We love you. Absolutely. <laughs> but aside from it being creepy, I... I didn't feel personally threatened. And again, maybe that's my naivety. I would. Oh my gosh. Um, I, I felt personally attacked, okay. but not, but not, I don't know. Again, it's like you say, I retired recently and so many people have said to me, what a good time to retire as a librarian and how nice that, you know, you were sort of the right age and had the resources that you could get out. And I'm like, that's actually part of the reason why I almost didn't. Because yeah. I'm up for the fight. I wanted to stay and advocate for those books. And I think I think the district I retired from and the the librarians who do such a, a good job in our district, I I'm not worried on a, a grand scale. You know, I don't think anybody's gonna come in behind me at my school, my old school or any other school. And start yanking books off the shelf. But, you know, we are one of those states. And it's happening lots of other places. So, and in some ways, I have even more freedom to fight now that I am retired. I feel like I can show up at the legislature or a protest or whatever. And I did all those things before. (laughs) (laughs) But now I can be even more vocal and not feel like it's going to reflect badly on my employer or... Get you fired. Yeah, yeah. or or upset, you know, parents at my school. I always felt like I had a lot of support from families and parents at my school. But um, I'm very lucky that way because not all librarians... No. Have that kind of support. I do feel like you have a wide network of library people. Have you, I'm like from from like a career perspective, like like what? How do you see this impacting librarians as a whole? Like, do you have a perspective on that? Just from all, I feel like because you talk to librarians from all over the country, so much more than I do. I do, and some of the when I go to national conferences and serve on these committees it's a lot more public librarians than school librarians Mm -hmm. in the mix and so I feel like I get more of that perspective than maybe a lot of school librarians do but boy they're really feeling it too and it's just so demoralizing because I think librarians throughout history have known that they've often had to fight sort of freedom of information fights of one kind or another. Access to all kinds of materials and make the case that, you know, no, this isn't for everybody. And yes, this is, you know, on the fringe. I mean, this comes up at least 
historically far more with adult materials than sure. with children's mm-hmm. materials. But still, you know, if it's serving a purpose and, you know, it's gone through the process of being carefully selected for the collection. And I think people know, I hope people know that, yeah, librarians don't just buy everything because you can't because there's too much. You wouldn't have room for it. You don't have the budget for it. And so there are selection policies in place. And librarians don't just buy the books they like, and they don't just buy the books automatically that patrons request, although they take that into careful consideration. But they read reviews, there's a careful selection policy from your smallest library to your biggest big city library systems with, you know, dozens of branches. Books are carefully curated and chosen for those libraries. So I hope I hope people understand that. So that's a fight librarians, I think, know going in before they ever become a librarian and they're they're taking their classes and they understand that's potentially part of the job. But it's become so much more personal lately with so many of these laws around the country or at least bills that are being floated. Most of them don't get passed as laws because they're so shockingly wrong or they're not even constitutional. But they keep trying and they keep tweaking them. And it's they want to hold librarians personally accountable with fines or threat of firing and then or criminal prosecution absolutely and then just such horrible name calling that librarians are groomers that librarians are pornography pushers that and just people don't become school librarians to get rich or famous (laughs) (laughs) to imply that we don't have the best interests of kids at heart when you go into education and you I mean I was an English teacher for years before I became a school librarian and yeah my goal was not never was never will be to corrupt young minds and you know push harmful materials on them and just those very offensive personal attacks yeah i know are just wearing librarians down public librarians school librarians all across the country well it's a bit of a downer to end on (laughs) (laughs) well um we can bring it back to queer joy i just really encourage people to check out the rainbow list which is a list that American Library Association puts out every year of like, you know, roughly a hundred or more books that they think are just outstanding books for general readership and for libraries to add to their collection. Check out specifically the Stonewall winners, um, especially the Stonewall youth winners. I think we picked two really good ones this year. Do you want to shout them out? Sure. The teen pick is called Only This Beautiful Moment by Abdi Nazemian, and it's three different stories in one, and I don't want to say too much more than that, because it might get spoilery, but those three stories are taking place in three different settings, both time and place, but end up connecting in very interesting ways. Oh, I've read the... Now I'm remembering which book this is, because I read all the descriptions of all the orders. Uh-huh. Yeah, that was a fascinating. Yeah, one. so good. And then our youth pick just charmed all of us. It's a book that in English is called Cross My Heart and Never Lie. Um, but it's a graphic novel in translation from Norway. And oh my gosh, the illustrations are beautiful and charming and the text is lovely and the story is great. It's one year in this young girl's life just as she's starting junior high and she starts keeping a diary to chronicle her year. And she has some goals at the beginning of the year of just, you know, wanting to be more grown up and be a cool, almost teenager. And it's just lovely. And I'm so excited the sequel is already out in Norway and should be out in America next fall. Keep us posted. Absolutely. Thank you for sharing your, your wisdom and your time with us. Thank you so much for having me. 
This show is recorded and edited by me, Wally. The music that you're listening to now and at the beginning of the show is by the incredible band, Keep Going. Make sure that you check out show notes. It's got all of the important social media links, the list of books we talked about in today's episode, and also ways that you can support me and the show so I can continue to make more episodes. Thank you for listening. Stay curious. And if you stay tuned, you will get another 10 or 15 minutes of Gregory and I giving more book talks I had to cut for length. So please enjoy. something that didn't wind up on our final list but um emmett is a modern day retelling of emma (gasps) and emmett is this kid who's you know like he's on student council and he's popular and and he thinks he has everybody's lives figured out including his own and all of his friends and he's always trying to hook them up and uh, you know, orchestrate everybody's love lives as well as like run the fundraiser. I and... need this in my life immediately. I grew up on Clueless, you yeah. know. Oh, exactly. And so it's... I'm like the idea of Clueless, Clueless but, but now with gay. a gay boy oh my as the God. main character. Put it directly in my veins. <laughs> oh, it's so charming uh, and just hilarious. Um, we read a book called Teach the Torches to Burn. Great title, oh, and it's yeah. and it's a it. Romeo and Juliet quote, and mm-hmm. the book is a Romeo and Juliet retelling, um, and not set in modern times, like in in the original time and place. Oh, um, cool, yeah. But Romeo just isn't as interested in all these like hot girls like Benvolio and Mercutio are, and they're always like, "We need to find you a girlfriend," and like, "What's wrong with you?" and and then he meets an original character who's been inserted into the story, Valentine. And uh, he's like, oh, I get it now. This is how Mercutio and Benvolio feel about girls. But um, And it's great because Juliet is still in it. And Juliet's a fantastic character in it. So it's not just like they gender swapped out uh-huh. Juliet so they could make Romeo gay. It's, oh, it's... So if it's not... It... Do, it's, does it have a happy ending? I don't want to spoil oh my God. anything. I'll cut it out. I'll bleep it out. But just tell me. I need to know. Everything, almost everything in this book lines up with the original mm-hmm. Shakespeare play. But it's just like, but what if all this other stuff was going on? behind the scenes or between the scenes that that make it all read completely differently. Yeah. Oh my gosh, that sounds amazing. And even though it's not my main jam, I feel like I have to shout out the great work that queer picture books are doing these days. Mm -hmm. And really great queer nonfiction picture books, especially biographies, Mm -hmm. because that's something picture books have always done really well is biographies. And now more and more, there are picture books featuring queer people in history, including recent history. Like we read a great picture book, I'm forgetting the title, but it's about the first trans national legislator um, in the United States and their story. And, And then something picture books are doing really well, there's this beautiful picture book you would love it i i need to loan you my copy of this (laughs) about the artist david hockney oh okay and i feel like this picture book could have come out 20 years ago and the art would have been just as beautiful and the text would have been just as informative but it wouldn't have mentioned the fact that he was a queer man okay and this picture book does not shy away from that at all it doesn't make it the focus of the book either Um, but we read several like that where it's just like, even for, you know, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten year olds, that can be part of a person's story. And that, you know, has nothing to do with sex Mm -hmm. and it doesn't mean you're pushing a lifestyle on them. It's just part of who this person was and, um, part of what informed their art and their life choices and all the rest so love it 
love it so much. I could talk about books all day. I know. Same. (laughs) If you were to, like, pick, I don't know, three to five, like, queer YA canon. Like, if you want to understand this. Like, if you were designing, like, a college course or something, or, like, a survey of queer YA lit. Like, what are the essential texts that have to be on that list for you? I know, that's a, that's a that really hard so question. Hard. <laughs> no, I should have warned you. That I just so thought hard. of it, though. <laughs> well, a lot that we've mentioned already, just because mm-hmm. they were sort of historical or groundbreaking sure. when they came out. Um, I Because I think you'd have to, even though it's so tame compared to contemporary stuff I think you'd have to go all the way back to I'll get there it better be worth the trip you know that very first 1969 I love that title so much (laughs) yeah the fact that a book title has a period in the middle of it um, because it's actually I'll get there period it better be worth the trip is the title of the book Um, but uh, yeah also I feel like Luna is still so good being that first trans book in the early part of the 21st century. Beautiful Music for Ugly Children. Did you ever yeah. read that? Yeah, it, yeah, it yeah. came out in maybe like 2011 That's or 12. The one about the radio? Uh, yeah, right? the radio yeah. DJ. Also a really terrific trans book. And I still feel like Simon is just so great. Really, really fairly recent stuff. Um we were talking about Red, White, and Royal Blue, mm-hmm. the first YA book she wrote. So far, the only, but I think she's going to write more. I Kissed Shara Wheeler. Oh, yeah. I just thought was really creative and clever. Geography Club, I would go back to. I, that sounds fun. I want to read that one. Yeah. Um, and he ended up writing a whole... Brent Hardinger is the author. He ended up writing some sequels where he focused on other characters in the geography club who weren't his original main character. Oh, that's fun. Um, but all the original characters still show up, like, in each other's books. So that's kind of oh, cool. I love that. Yeah. Gosh, I'm sure I'm forgetting all sorts of stuff. Vast Fields of Ordinary, the first youth Stonewall winner in 2010. In, in fact, it's sort of been... So I have a copy at home, and it's sort of been sitting there staring at me while I was doing all my Stonewall reading and going, I need to reread that. I haven't read that in 10 years and I need to get back to it. Now I'm circling back in not a very linear way for a podcast, but... Um, it's what editing is for. Right. Um, <laughs> Drama by Raina Telgemeier is oh, so good, but I, so good. it's really not, it's not even like a queer book like the main character's not queer that's not mainly what the book's about but she's in her middle school theater club and likes working you know she doesn't want to be on stage she likes working behind the scenes and helping you know run the stage productions Mm -hmm. what theater group even in middle school doesn't have a gay kid or two or ten yeah (laughs) it was just like it's like the Venn diagram of queer kids and theater club is almost a circle. <laughs> and so the fact that this charming little graphic novel for middle grade kids happens to have um, a couple boys in it who hold hands and kiss in a very cartoony, age-appropriate way. Yeah. <sighs> People. Yeah. Same with Prince and the Dressmaker. Oh my God, I love that book. It's such a lovely book. Oh my God. Um, and, and then if people really want something gritty, we are the ants. Oh, have you read that? Oh my God. That book is, uh, it about killed me, but man, is it brilliant, wow. but yeah. dark. Oh yeah. Whew. One of our honor books this year is called the spirit bears its teeth. Mm-hmm. And it's about a trans character in an alternate Victorian England that has a few fantasy elements woven in and but a lot of very real history about how um, girls who were really boys would get you know locked up for being insane or mentally ill mm-hmm. or 
um, non-compliant to their fathers and older brothers sure. and husbands. And uh, yeah. that was a really rough read, but so good. Yeah, that and sounds good. Horror is not my jam, and fantasy is not is sort of middle of the list for me. And so I was trepidatious about reading that book because the author is known for doing some kind of intense body horror kind of sure. stuff. And I'm like, I'm not going to like that. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm not going to like the horror stuff and the fantasy s- stuff I could take or leave. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh, it was just a brilliant book. I, like, especially I got to the last third and couldn't put it down. And I'm not one of those people who can stay up all night reading a book. I fall asleep anyway, no matter how good the book is. And this book, it's like, I just kept reading faster and faster. And <laughs> Okay, well, that one's going on my list. Oh, you're going to love that. I like that. fantasy and horror. I know. this. This You're going to love that book. That's why I mentioned it. Have you read Camp Damascus? No. Chuck Tingle of, <laughs> like, dinosaur erotica fame. Right. Wrote a... YA traditionally puffed horror set in a gay conversion camp. Wow. And it's like kind of a Peter Pan allegorical situation. And he has, he just released the cover of his, he signed a like multi book deal for like several YA horror novels. And the next one is called Kill Your Gays. I just adore him to bits. Okay. Well, that's going right on my list. I was like, I know it's horror, but like... Now that I'm finally free to read whatever I want. I know.